In today's day and age, you can find hemp CBD products nearly everywhere. Why not support a veteran-owned and operated CBD business, Uncana, who are vertically integrated with local Denver, Colorado hemp pioneers, giving them complete oversight into their operations from seed to sell. Uncana's products are organically grown using local Colorado hemp. FDA registered in current good manufacturing practices facilities, using the latest food-grade extraction technology and systems, ISO 17025 accredited third-party lab testing facilities, and a rigorous quality assurance and quality control throughout their entire process helps you feel confident that you're receiving one of the highest quality products on the market. As a veteran, Kobe and his Uncana team are also fighting to remove the barriers to natural alternatives for service members by advocating for the reversal of the DOD ban on non-intoxicating hemp-derived CBD products. Go check out Uncana today at uncana.com. Are you wanting to buy veteran but having a hard time locating those businesses? Mentorship Military is looking to help out those businesses by creating an online directory. Help out these local and national veteran-owned businesses by visiting veteranownedus.com. They'll appreciate your business during these difficult times. That's veteranownedus.com. If you enjoy our show, then you can help us by bringing great guests and content each week by making a donation at patreon.com. Our site is patreon.com slash mentors for mail. We appreciate everyone who's helped us get here where we are today through your donations. You're at the top of our list. Become a donor today by visiting patreon.com slash mentors, the number four M-I-L. So, um, I don't know how familiar you are with uh, Patty. So, Patty was uh, back with us on um, episode 182, and um, she's a bit of a badass. And, of course, she's been a guest host with me on several occasions. Um, I really enjoy her company and her being a a podcast co-host. And um, so, I invited her on to this show because I thought this would be a great pairing. Not not only, I actually, I gave her like 10 shows, and she picked several of them. And this was one of them. (laughs) So... Good deal. So, Patty, I don't know if you want to do a bit of an introduction beyond that, but sure. Uh, Megan, I'm so excited. I and I apologize. I started Google stalking you about an hour ago. Um, <laughs> exciting. So, um, I'm a little older. Um, I'm a 91 Red Cross grad. I served 24 years in the Army. Wound up losing my leg at about the 15 year mark, and then um, the Paralympics were available to me. So, I competed in triathlon in 2016. And um, which was a year after I retired. So I'm a big sports junkie. So reading your story was really exciting for me. So um, that's that's enough, right? Is that enough? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's, <laughs> that's enough. Yeah. That's You're, legit. Yeah. Yeah. And I won't bore you with my background. You can always go out and Google me. You won't find me, but you can Google me. So, um, all right. So let's dive into this because I found your story really fascinating. And as I started, you know, doing my own research on you and stuff, um, I think there's a lot of similarities here between the two of you that I think we'll get into as the, the conversation goes on. But typically what I like to do is start at the very beginning because a lot of people, you know, always are curious about, okay, what was it? Uh, what was the reason why Megan decided to go into the military? And what was, the, you know, her humble beginnings there? What was all that like? So as I understand it, you were a tomboy. Uh, yeah, I would, I would say so. I'm uh, So I have an older brother and... um. I kind of always, you know, tried to mimic him as, as I was growing up. He played football, and um, I there was like Pop Warner football, and I did not want to be a cheerleader. But at the time, you know, you weren't allowed to play football, so I would just like run up and down the side of the field like with players. <laughs> I just kind of followed what what my brother was doing, and uh, my dad was also an athlete, and so he kind of instilled in the two of us to pursue sports and. Um, not that pursuing sports is a tomboy thing to do, but I mean, it it does require um, some things that are a little less girly, I would say, <laughs> in terms of the training. And so um, I think that, you know, having a background in sports and um, knowing pretty early on that I would like to play sports in college, um, that whole like 
having to train for a goal and be a part of a team, I think that kind of carried over to my desire to join the military. And I, I knew that I was interested in joining the military at a, at a pretty young age also. Um, I The funny story is that um, at my high school, some of my middle school and high school were um, combined. They're on different like wings, but they shared like a cafeteria and a common area. And at the time a, a recruiter came and was recruiting obviously high school students. I was still in middle school and uh, they were doing a push-up contest. But if you wanted to do the push-up contest, you had to sign your name and you know give your information. So right. I was like, oh, well, I could do this. <laughs> and then uh, a recruiter shows up to my house. And I so, I mean, I don't know. I was probably like 12 years old or something. I <laughs> no don't know. way. And so then my dad opens the door and he's like, and the recruiter's like, I'm looking for Megan. And my dad's like, you're looking for who? <laughs> like she's not even old enough to join the military. Um, and the recruiter came in and he talked to me about the army. He told me about jobs and stuff. And I think that really stuck with me because I obviously was not going to be a prospective recruit for this guy. You know, I was not going to go towards his quota. And uh, it meant a lot to me that he came in and talked to me about it anyway. And um, so I did go. I, I played sports all through high school and I played Division One field hockey at American University. And um, when I was graduating, I started to kind of uh, apply to some federal positions. But the the big no that I heard numerous numerous times was that you need three to five years of work experience and then a master's degree. And so I was like, well, I'm as soon as I graduated, I basically went home and um, I enlisted in the army after I graduated. Yeah. So now you had a difficult time, though, from the very beginning, because I understand it. You were born premature. And, I was, yes. yeah, and so that was, uh, that was part of the challenge that you had as well in the early days, I guess. Especially like, what, did it affect you in field hockey? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I mean, so I was. I was born um, two months premature by uh, emergency C-section, and basically, um, my my mother had a clampsia, so she was, um, you know, had her heart rate was crazy blood pressure was going all over the place she was filling up with water and they were like we got to take this baby or it's you or the baby and so um they didn't really didn't think that I was going to make it and um uh, so my parents have always said you know Megan's been a fighter since day one and so uh I guess it's true <laughs> I don't remember that part but <laughs> yeah so Megan when you came in the army what was your specialty where'd you start off as with your MOS um, a 35 Foxtrot Intel analyst. Um, I enlisted as a specialist and then uh, a few years ago I actually decided to commission and I commissioned into Intel branch as well. Nice. So you were, were you based at, were you in the National Guard? Did you come on active duty? So um, I joined right away as a reservist so that I could get my master's. Um, I actually got my master's in intelligence studies through uh, AMU and then I um, at that time, while I was kind of going through that process, I was recruited to do bobsled, and I'm a little too small for bobsled. <laughs> they want you to be, you know, a certain height. You got to be like five seven, five eight, 150 to 180 pounds. I'm five foot two and a half, and I'm like 120 pounds. So that was, you know, wasn't gonna work out for me. I did go try bobsled. It was super interesting. Um, and uh, they told me, you know, to switch over to skeleton. But in that process, you know, in my mind, I was like, okay, I'm going to go to the reserve so I can get my master's full time. And it just kind of panned out that skeleton ended up falling in my lap, like right as I was done with, you know, basic and AIT. And I had started my master's online. So they all kind of like happened all at once, which I guess is kind of cool. But um, I, I don't think I knew... How, at the time, like how serious and how what a commitment me, you know, starting Skeleton would be or what what that journey was going to pan out like. And uh, the other cool part is that in all of that, I was able to combine, you know, the Army and being an athlete. So I applied to be a part of the Army's world class athlete program. And uh, I've been in and out of the program a couple of times, but that's been probably the coolest experience. I've had some really amazing experiences through the military, but I would say being an athlete is is probably my favorite one. <laughs> so when you were on the bobsled team, I mean, were you trying out for a period of time? Or did you actually make the team? And how did that go? Because I'm curious, um, 
you know, were you carrying your weight and it was just a matter of they wanted you to gain additional weight as far as bulk and everything? Or how, how did that go? So, um, I just, I really just came and kind of, I think I did like a, a mini tryout. Uh, I actually slid with a couple of girls and I, that was over like a long weekend basically. And then they were, they sat me down and they were like, well, you know, you're pretty fast, but you're going to have to gain this much weight. And I was like, you know, that's not going to happen. <laughs> so then right. uh, at that time they told me you should look at skeleton and that will probably be a better fit for you. Yeah. Skeleton freaks me out. I'm going to tell you right now. Yeah. Okay. So bobsled, I don't know what it is. It's sort of like driving a car versus riding a motorcycle. You know, I, I rode a motorcycle <laughs> yeah. for a many years, a lot of it motocross, but um, driving on the streets is a different, you know, beast so in a car you at least feel like there's something around you and it doesn't matter whether it's a little small car or if it's a large car you just feel that sense of safety probably not the best um you know thing that you're supposed to do but nonetheless you do but skeleton it's just you in a sled mm -hmm. you're laying on your belly with your neck up and it just doesn't look comfortable at all and you're going a gazillion miles an hour <laughs> take us through this whole thing what was the first experience like well I will say being in the back of a bobsled kind of feels like being thrown down a hill in a garbage pail. Oh, really? <laughs> so it's, it's but I never drove like I never drove a bobsled. I would like to think it's a little bit better. Um, skeleton is actually not that bad. Um, if for any of the listeners, if you've ever been skydiving and you know what tracking is, I would say it's similar to that. Uh, there is kind of a roller coaster like feel, but because your center of gravity, you're, I mean, you're only a couple of inches off of the ice. So it doesn't feel, um, it doesn't feel super dangerous. You know, <laughs> I mean, it is, there's definitely times where I'm, I'm, I'm nervous and scared because you are going really fast and you experience up to five G's of force. So I, I think that's where kind of the adrenaline comes in because you're going at such a high speed. You have to process information, make really quick decisions. And, um, the other kicker is we only get six training runs before we have to race. So uh, it's a really short amount of time where you have to kind of perfect your craft. And I think that that has what has kind of drawn me to it because of that mental challenge. It's very different from like I played field hockey in college. That's a team sport. This is very individual. It's very one-on-one -on -one and it requires an immense amount of focus. I would say for skeleton and and bobsled, the mental focus that's required is something I never experienced in a team sport, and I I would pr I would assume it's probably similar to like an MMA fighter. That's that the same focus that's required um, to perform at a really high level. I said belly, but it's actually your back, right? So you're laying on your back, yeah. No, I, a skeleton is on your stomach. Okay, so lose your feet. Lose your okay. So I was trying to remember which one is which. Both of them look uncomfortable. So <laughs> you're 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 shooting down through this pipe, five G's. You said. Yeah, up to five G's in, okay. in some corners. Mm -hmm. So you're steering this thing by adjusting your weight. Yes. Yeah, so. The, you lay on your sled and um, there's a saddle which kind of comes and wraps around your torso. That, that's what keeps you there. And um, you, you steer by pushing your shoulders and your knees into the sled. And it's really subtle movement. It's not like you're like cranking into it. You know, it's just really small movements. And uh, it, it does take time to kind of figure out what exactly is required because it can just be just a tiny little bit of pressure and, um, yeah, it's not, not a whole lot that you're doing occasionally, you know, you can look with your eyes and just barely move your head, maybe touch your toes on the ground. Um, but for the most part, it's just using your shoulders and your knees. Okay. So I'm, I'm still trying to picture this whole thing. <laughs> so as you're going down through this, you're going to hit a bump because the ice, it, it's never smooth. They kind of look smooth when you're looking at it on TV until you see like a bobsled, you don't notice it as much, but when you see skeleton you can see yeah. the, the so how do you account for for that because you don't know where those those you know roadblocks or those things are going to be within the track um so hopefully during training you figured that out <laughs> yeah okay <laughs> before you get into a race um i, I would say like for the most part, any like large bump should be taken out before a race. But and sometimes the ice, like you said, it's really choppy. Yeah. So um, 
you're, you're kind of just like this the whole time. I don't really notice it until the, you're finished where you're like, man, I kind of feel like I was being thrown around there. But, um, yeah, hopefully there's nothing too crazy. No, no, uh, speed bumps. <laughs> See, like, a, you know, in, in golf, you got a caddy. A caddy goes out there and tells you right where to, you know, to hit the ball and everything else. <laughs> you guys don't have somebody that you send down no, the tube. Hey, you, you got to do six runs, all levels. You got to tell me where it's at, right? No. Yeah. That would be the off, awesome thing to do. Just have one person on the team that just goes out there, wipes out so you know exactly where the bad parts are. Actually, we do have that. So before races, um, they send what's called forerunners down the track. And so they test to make sure the timing system is working and that there's like nothing in the track. Sometimes people's like, we have tape on our sled. Um, sometimes stuff comes off, people's shoes break, like crazy stuff happens. So they go and they, they're like the test dummies for the run. So we do have that. <laughs> okay. Megan, what does training look like? Cause I'm trying to envision that you obviously you have to be very still as you're doing this subtle movements, um, lots of mental training. What does physical training look like for skeleton? I, it's similar to um, track and field in a way. I, I do a lot of Olympic lifts, a lot of powerful like uh, plyometrics and jumps, squatting. So because we have to be really strong and fast for a really short amount of time. So I'm not running miles. You know, my training for like an army PT test is drastically different. Um, I, I really run short distances because it's all focused on explosive speed. And uh, especially for me, I'm actually the smallest competitor uh, on the World Cup this last season. And uh, I push the heaviest sled in the field. So for me, it's even like more important that I'm strong enough to get this sled moving because that's kind of um, the big part of the race, believe it or not, is that start because you can, you can get such an advantage if you're one of the faster people to get your sled moving the fastest. Obviously there's driving required after that. You can't just push your sled and hold on. <laughs> but, um, if you are a fast pusher, it does help you. Isn't it all upper body though? Cause you're sitting, isn't that right? You're like sitting and then you rock back and forth and then you just kind of slap your, no, that's not it. So that's loose. Dang God, man, I've, I keep, <laughs> I keep doing that. Why? <laughs> so skeleton and skeleton and bobsled have a running start. So, so you I take off. run okay. and push, push a sled and then I load onto the sled. And, um, and then from there I'm on my stomach head first. Hopefully some other people are going to be listening to this and envisioning the same thing that I am, that it's the wrong one. So <laughs> it, it, so hopefully it's not just me. Uh, anyway. So, yeah, I have one more technical question. So you made a comment that you push the heaviest sled. So do the, is there a combined weight between pusher and sled so that you don't have an unfair advantage over com competition, right? Yes. So luckily last year they made a rule change. So it used to be that, um, even though I pushed a heavier sled, I had to adhere to this this combined weight. And then if you had um, a light sled or a minimum weight sled, you and your sled could weigh anything. Now that's changed because that was such a disadvantage for smaller people. I mean, there's not that many of us who are small, but it was a really big disadvantage to me because there could be someone who outweighs me by, you know, 20 to 40 pounds or something. And now... Um, now it, it's changed in that everybody has to be under a certain combined weight. So how many people are on a team then, a skeleton team, for the, for the U.S.? So um, it, it depends, but usually, so on the World Cup team, there's either two or three. It depends how we do as a team. And then, like, for the Olympics, we, have, we would have to qualify. Um, usually we send two, could possibly be three. It depends on how we do. And then um, there's actually two levels to the U.S. national team. There's the World Cup team, and there's also the Intercontinental Cup team. And they're, they're two different circuits, but they're both considered uh, the national team. Okay. So take us back then to, I guess it was around 2000, before 2014, you were preparing for the Olympics and everything within um, Russia, and something happened to you there in, in Utah. So take us back to that day. Sure. So I, um, I was living in Utah at the time I was this, I was a member of the army world class athlete program and, um, I was training. I had actually just finished the 2012 season, uh, excuse me, 2011 to 2012. 
And I finished as the national champion in 2012, which was very exciting. Wow. And then um, that fall, I actually started a birth control. And um, it's NuvaRing. You can edit that out if you like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so I started taking this birth control. And within 10 days of starting it, I had I started to have like difficulty breathing. And I think if it wasn't for me being an athlete, I'm not sure that I would have really noticed because it was just that I was taking a little bit longer to recover between sprints. It was just a little bit abnormal and um, it gradually got exponentially worse. And so we also have to do an annual combine, kind of like when you think of the NFL combine, you know, you're being assessed on your sprinting and agility and lifting. And so we do something similar and I had to take this combine test. And I remember being there and I was trying to just, I was just going to jog a lap to warm up and I could, I could not finish the lap because I had such a hard time breathing. And so I was like, oh my gosh, this is embarrassing because I'm like a returning athlete at this time and you have new athletes there and they're looking at me like, what is wrong with this girl? And, um, yeah. Yeah. And I sprint like our sprints are only 45 meters. And for anybody who does any sort of sprinting, like, you know, that's half of a straightaway on a track. So that's really not that far. And so I would, you know, I sprint this and then I would like lay on the ground completely out of breath. And I am sure people, I never asked what anybody was thinking, but I'm sure they were probably like, what in the world is wrong with this girl? (laughs) Like, did she train for this at all? (laughs) But, um, I ended up finishing the combine, believe it or not. I had a lot of, uh, personal bests in the lifting portion and I ended up, I, I I was just like, I just got to make it through this thing. I, I have to, Take it one event at a time and I'll make it through. And I mean, it's an all day thing. And so when I finished the combine, I went to an urgent care and I was just like, I cannot breathe. I cannot, I could barely hold a conversation with somebody. I was just, I was gasping for air and, uh, they wanted to give me like an epinephrine shot or like, you know, the adrenaline shot. And I was like, I am not doing that. (laughs) Like, absolutely not. So they were like, well, I don't know what to do with you. So they prescribed me like an inhaler or something and kind of sent me on my way. And so I bought one of those like the pulse ox things that you put yeah. on your finger because I was like looking at what percentage my the oxygen was because I was like, if this gets really low, then it'll be, you know, really dangerous. And it was it was definitely it was under 98. It, and then it started it kept like kind of dropping and I had to leave the next day. So I flew from Utah, I flew to Florida to see uh, my boyfriend at the time. And when I was there, I saw a pulmonologist, um, or excuse me, I saw another doctor while I was there. They prescribed me like an antibiotic. And I basically went, so I saw a series of doctors and I eventually made my way back up to Connecticut. And um, I I basically told the same story. You know, I, I was living in Utah at the time there were fires. So I don't know if that's it. And I'm having like an upper respiratory infection, but I started this birth control. I do nothing different. I eat the same. I train the same. There's nothing else that's changed in my life. I think this is what's causing this. And I'm having a really hard time breathing. And so, um, I finally see a pulmonologist once I get back home and they, he's listening to my story and he's like, you know, I really think that you have blood clots in your lungs. I hope that I'm wrong, but this is really serious. And he's like, I can't believe that you flew on an airplane because this Mm. is so dangerous. So I need you to go get um, a CAT scan and then, you know, we'll take it from there. But I need you to go like immediately. And so uh, my my dad was with me. He rushed me to go get this CAT scan. And I'm um, I also did an ultrasound on my legs. And I'm sitting in the ultrasound room and that they, you know, the, the UA, the ultrasound tech, I mean, hands me the phone and it's the pulmonologist on the line. And he's like, Megan, um, I'm sorry to tell you that you have multiple bilateral pulmonary embolisms in both lungs. You have a, a big clot off of the main pulmonary artery. And it looks like somebody took paint splatter and splattered it on your lungs. You have oh all these clots in there. Gosh. And he's like, I'm sending an ambulance to come pick you up. And uh, you're going to be put on blood thinners and you're going to be in the hospital for a little while. And I was like, what? 
So I just, uh, I was in disbelief, but a part of me knew that uh, the birth control was probably the cause. And the doctor said, you know, it's more than likely that this birth control uh, is what caused it, but we're going to have to test and make sure that, you know, you don't have a blood clotting disorder and, and all of that. And so I saw five doctors, I got CAT scan, I had chest x-rays and all, you know, the whole nine yards. And I, I told the same story and over and over again. And, you know, I'm, I'm happy that I didn't listen to the first person because, um, you know, he said, he's like, you're just like, you're like a walking time bomb. You're just ready to drop. <laughs> I'm like, oh, cool. That's great. Well, there was uh, only two outliers here, though. I mean, and that was, you know, one, the birth control, and two, that you were in an environment that you thought may have been unhealthy. So the fact that they didn't even focus on those two things and they automatic, I get it. They're trying to look at the, you know, the root causes and everything as it pertains to your body symptoms and not focus on these other out outliers and stuff but you gotta you gotta pay attention to that especially yeah. now with you know we're learning more and more through veterans and burn pits that that's now the the new agent orange and of this generation yeah. back from vietnam you know and agent orange there so i mean both of those were critical factors that a physician should have paid attention to thankfully you kept pushing it and had you I know. yeah had you done and, it and earlier it's, you know it's crazy that um you know, that's actually a really well-known side effect of birth control, mm. um, especially this one. And uh, when I, I was prescribed it by an Air Force doctor in Utah, and she she, she was like, you know, are you a smoker? Because I tried to think back, you know, did this person say something to me? And the only thing she said was that, are you a smoker? And I said, no. And then she was like, oh, well, then you should be fine. There should be no issue. You know, I think a physician would look at you and say, here is a young adult who is the epitome of health and fitness. Um, clearly, it can't be something like a pulmonary embolism. So yeah. um, so you were in your 20s, right, when that happened? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so you were, you're, you're coming off a national championship. You're at the top of your game. And now this happens. And so... When you got that diagnosis and you knew you had to go to the hospital for a couple of days to sort of sort through this, like what was going on mentally for you? How, how, how was that? I mean, I know how that was, but talk us through that. Sure. So I actually, I went to the hospital, all of that, like the crazy stuff kind of happened on, on September 11th um, in 2012. And so I was like, man, this day kind of stinks. But um, <laughs> wow. so uh, I was in the hospital for a week. I was bedridden for a week. And then um, and they gave me the, the heparin shots, you know, in the stomach and put me on blood thinners and let me go. And then after that, they were like, you know, you can walk for 10 minutes a day and you're going to have to keep coming back to the doctor's office till we sort um, your INR, which is something it's like a prothrombin time. It's basically how thick or thin your blood is. And if you're there's different blood thinners now, but you know, eight years ago or so, that was uh, Coumadin, which is still used today. But you have to check your blood to make sure that it's not too thick or too thin. And in the beginning, it's like a nightmare to figure out what the dose, the correct dose is. And so uh, that was very strange. I think from training five to six days a week, sometimes twice a day at that time, and now I was spending the equivalent essentially in and out of the doctor's office. And I was just, you know, sitting, spending a lot of my time sitting in a waiting room and looking around and there's mostly older people here. And I was just like, man, this is, I feel like I'm in a time warp. Um, and my season starts usually in October. So, you know, at that time I was like leading up to the season. And so it was just very bizarre um, feeling. And I, I remember when we got the results and I met back with the pulmonologist, you know, he's like, you know, you may never be an athlete ever again, because this is, you know, this is really serious. And I know, you know, doctors always have to give like the worst case scenario and, and stuff. But um, I just had to tell myself that he was wrong. I mean, it's not always going to work out for people, right? Like, it's not always going to be that the doctor's wrong and that, um, your condition isn't what it is. But I think for me, it helped me to be like, no, I'm still going to come back. And 
And I, I felt that to be true. I felt like I don't have a clotting disorder. I feel like this was brought on specifically by this medication, um, which I was actually hesitant to take. So I think another like lesson that I learned from that is to really to listen to your intuition. And I know that's easier said than done sometimes, but um, I really was like, very apprehensive. I really thought that it was um, probably not a good idea for me. And uh, could have been, I guess, a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way. But, um, but and then coming back from that, yeah, I, I just, I told myself that uh, I'm going to be able to slide by the end of the year and I'm going to return next year. And even if it's not as quickly as I would like, I, I truly believe that uh, I'm going to be able to come back from this. And that wasn't always easy. I feel like there are a lot of really dark days um, just because it's also something that people don't see. So they're like, you look fine. What's wrong with you? You know, why aren't you competing? And, and I had heard about blood clots, but I didn't really know, you know, what the potential side effects were. I always, you know, you always think of like the older person or someone flying on an airplane and they get a blood clot in their leg. Like that's, kind of what I thought of. I didn't necessarily think about people getting it in their lungs. And um, I mean, obviously you hear of strokes and things like that, but um, I think people just didn't know. They really didn't know. And that was hard for me because I felt like there was really no support system. And even like some of the questions I had when I was going through recovery, the doctors really didn't have a lot of answers. I had a really like my central nervous system and your, your cardiovascular system gets so stressed from something like that. So I was sleeping feel like 15 hours a day, but I was also had really bad tachycardia and I thought it was from the Coumadin. I was like, is this a side effect of Coumadin? Cause I have really bad tachycardia, like to the point where it's like fairly uncomfortable. It's so noticeable. And they were like, no, but I, you know, I looked online, I talked to people on forums and other people about like who are blood clot survivors just because, um, I don't know. I just felt like the doctors really didn't have a whole lot of, I guess, I, I, I guess it's cause I didn't personally experience it, but they just, I felt like there weren't a lot of answers for me. Yeah. You probably didn't have the kind of care and physicians too, that understood an athlete, um, especially an Olympic athlete or somebody that's preparing for that too, and how to properly can start conditioning yourself for that. I mean, they're used to just taking it baby steps. You're just a, more of a normal, you know, type of thing. And so this is where a lot of times um, physicians who are used to dealing with athletes, I know that around uh, military installations, sometimes there are physicians who specialize in sports and those sports doctors really understand the not just the physical side of it but the mental side that you're going through and that the, you, you've got to kind of work both of it because the patient needs to understand there is going to be not just a curve to get you back up to a normal state but you're talking about wanting to compete now your body has changed during this oh, time yeah. frame yeah <laughs> So there's a bit of a bring you to the normal person and then bring you to the athlete that you want to get back to, you know, in that state. So that must have been very challenging. Yeah, it was. I mean, even just being um, in the hospital for a week, I actually lost 10 pounds. And I remember there was a sign on the wall that said, you know, because referring probably to older people, but like you should get up and walk today. Um, because like every three days that you're in bed, like, I don't know, basically you deteriorate like five, something like that. And I was like, Oh, good. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, uh, it, it was, it was so different. And I mean, you could tell over time that, I mean, I just like, when you look at me, I like to think, you know, that I'm an athlete based on looking at me and, I, and you couldn't tell because I had lost, I lost so much weight and I just kind of looked very, very abnormal for me. It was very like frail in comparison. And, um, and that was not easy either because, and people would comment on it, you know, they'd be like, you know, you, you know, and they don't look healthy. <laughs> so <laughs> nice. it's like, yeah. but, um, I, I would say it was more mentally challenging, I think, than, than physically, like, you know, you can, at least I was in a position where I could, you know, train and come back and everything and um I think it was just hard to kind of feel isolated and I know uh, there's so many 
people in the military who feel that for numerous reasons, um, whether it's an injury like yours or whether it's PTSD or just even during coronavirus, everybody's isolated and alone. Like there's a lot of people feel that way. And I think um, that that can be pretty difficult. Yeah. Yeah. And I was going to ask you, because you you talked about, you know, your dad took you to appointments and things like that. I guess, first of all, what was your support network like when you were going through that? And then what did the WCAP side of the army, like, were they like, hey, sorry, not cutting it, you're out? Or were they supportive in helping you along? What did that look like for that, you know, comebacks trail? So they, um, they were fairly supportive. So my, I feel like my support system was my family, (laughs) thankfully. And then, um, but WCAP was as well. I remember the the chief and the commander, like everybody had called me. They sent me flowers, which was really nice um, when I was in the hospital. And then they, so usually um, the winter athletes anyway, well, bobsled skeleton and luge, we are, WCAP is headquartered in Fort Carson, Colorado. And then we stay in Lake Placid. So we actually have a remote duty station. And um, they decided that they were going to bring me to Fort Carson and oversee my recovery, which was nice. And um, so I at least felt like I had access to some people who knew what it was that I was doing and trying to get back to. And that, I mean, I think so that happened in September. And then I think by like January or February, I went out to Fort Carson and I was there for a few months while they oversaw my recovery. So now there was no concern then about flying at that point or going to a higher elevation? Um, no, I think because, <laughs> so I had asked, I was like, am I yeah. really allowed to get on this airplane? <laughs> yeah, no lie. But I think because my, um, my INR, my, the blood thinners were stable and I actually ended up getting, so rather than me having to go to a doctor's office every week to check it, I ended up asking for, um, this little machine so you would pinprick your finger and check it yourself and then you'd have to call in and report it to your doctor so they could adjust your dosage and things like that and i was like this is going to be a lot easier for me um to do this and then and also like fly and everything else just to make sure that i'm fine and so that was that was actually so so amazing for me because i it really was hard for me to be like in and out of doctor's offices so much. So that really made a, a big difference and kind of like made me feel relatively normal. So, yeah. <laughs> so how was it training then in Colorado in, um, you know, the Fort Carson, Colorado Springs area and stuff? Do you find that that maybe looking back on it um, benefited you by being in a higher elevation as opposed to, you know, just regular sea elevation or or, or maybe it was even harder because uh, you were in that situation? Um, I think... Well, I didn't like really get back into crazy training right away. So I I would say that I I didn't notice. (laughs) I knew I was really out of shape. (laughs) So I can't tell you if I noticed it was like the altitude also. Um, But yeah, I don't, I I would say if I was running long distance, I would definitely notice. But (laughs) in the beginning there, because it was such like general and just, gradual training um that i don't know i can't say i think i was just out of shape (laughs) yeah so the next olympics are in february of 2022 and they're supposed to be in beijing so in 2014 they're in sochi russia in 2018 they're in pyeongchang um korea south korea and then they're supposed to be in beijing in 2022 and um i'm not sure what's going to happen with that i don't think anybody does um i do think it was really yeah. good that they moved the Summer Olympics uh, back a year. I know that just for those athletes, how stressful that was to worry about traveling to that similar area, you know, traveling to an Asian country. And um, well, also, I mean, you had people that were training in their living rooms. Like you had, I mean, there was stuff on the news about marathon runners running a marathon on their balcony in Italy. And I mean, like, what kind of Olympics would that have been? You yeah. know, like, there's no world records being broken here. You know, it just right. would have been not fair to to the athletes at all. I would have hated that. And and the, the stress, I think, would have been just monumental, like, going into that. Um, so it, it does present challenges for, for, 
for even the 22 games because um, they've already had to shift stuff to the right. And there's also youth Olympic games. They had to cancel that because that's also in 2022. They're just like, we can't host that many Olympics, Olympic level events in a row. We just are not going to be able to do that. And so I wonder what they'll do moving forward. um, If they'll go back to like what the years were supposed to be, because now the next Olympics for them will be in three years instead of four. And, um, but it's weird because you have people that may have been planning on retiring after this, and then they got to go another year. That's a, that's a lot for someone to be like, Oh man, I, you know, I had all my, my, (laughs) my eggs in one basket here and now they're all over the floor. (laughs) Right. Right. You found a good, um, a good point in that we think about, Oh, they're canceling the games and that's sad or they're postponing it a year. But even that whole year leading up to it is when you're training and qualifying. And so, um, one, most people still are not training full-time at home, wherever home might be in the world, you know, pools aren't even open yet or or things of that nature. So, and I think, um, I'm on the paratri committee for the U S. And so one of the things that we talked a lot about was even if we can get a race on the calendar later in this year, we've got to tell athletes that it does or it does not count on your road to Tokyo just so they have that mental, Yes, you know, that's one less thing for me to have to worry about is do I need to rise to the occasion on on a race that may or may not happen? So that's a great point. Yeah. Yeah. Now is that at all? Are you thinking about, and I don't know how familiar you are, the 1980 boycotted Olympic games? Yeah. So, so I know there was just a recent article about that because that's 40 years ago now. Um, Yeah. What, what went through their minds and what people are still carrying with them emotionally because they didn't compete. I know. And I think that, it's so important for so there's actually a, a new documentary out called The Weight of Gold um, on H I think it's HBO and um, one of my former teammates actually was in it talking about literally the weight of gold he's a former gold, gold medalist for bobsled and he ended up passing away because a lot of the athletes end up suffering from depression from meeting some big high and you know, not feeling like they can sustain something like that. And uh, I think it's really important that one, that um, the mental health aspect for athletes is taken into consideration, but also that's kind of like as me as an athlete, it's my responsibility too to make sure that um, my whole identity is not tied up in this. And that's very hard because I spend 365 days a year doing this, you know, and I think that 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 really does parallel to people in the military, especially when they get out that, um, who am I after this? You know, I, I was spent, you know, 20 plus years or whatever it is in the military. And now who am I without that? What do I do? And, um, so I would encourage people to kind of watch, watch that documentary. It's, it's, uh, I think it's like an hour, but, um, it is, it's really important to know that, that, that doesn't define you. And that's such a challenge when that's what you've put your whole heart and soul and life and eat, breathe, sleep, repeat for so long. And, um, I think a lot of the athletes, if they, you know, had kept the Olympics going for this year, or if they just canceled it outright, uh, that, that would be so challenging. And I'm not saying that it, that wouldn't be challenging for me. I just think that, um, I've recognized that and I kind of told myself you know like if they end up pushing because for me I was planning on retiring in 2022 after after these Olympics you know hoping I make this team (laughs) (laughs) and um we they they were talking about it you know in the beginning of the pandemic like you know they may push back 2022 they may not have this they might cancel it they may push it till 2026 they might not just have one I mean all the circumstances were swirling around and I was just like well you know, I'll have to deal with that when it comes. And even now, you know, they, they don't even know for having a season and we start in October. They said, they're going to tell us in September, in the middle of September, if we're going to have a season or not. And I'm like, I'm just training as though that's going to happen. And I think another skill set from the military is that, you know, we don't know what the mission is until it's time. <laughs> so, so tell me now, um, 
you made the transition at some point during this to go to OCS. So now you're an intelligence officer in the Massachusetts National Guard. Is that right? Um, I'm actually in the reserve. So my uh, I'm part of European Command. Okay, awesome. Um, and so not that I want to fast forward past your career in Olympics, which I'm sure in the future, then what? What's on your agenda, <laughs> your, your plan or your goals? So um, I have a, a few options. I'd really like to end up in the D.C. area. I do think I'll stay um, stay in the Army. I've been in for 11 years now. Um, about half of those years were active years. And so um, I would either I, I also am really interested in sports psychology. And I, I do think that that ties in with uh, a lot to do with the military. If I could end up being um, part of like some of the special forces and doing something like that, if I could somehow like marry those two things, but I would have to go and get a second master's, which I, I did start. I started a second master's in sports psychology, but um, due to financial reasons, I have postponed it. <laughs> and uh, I, I, that would be probably like the best case scenario is if I could like marry these two interests of mine and be able to help people. I think I've learned a lot in my athletic career just about mindset and and um, just little cues and tricks and things to to, to use. And uh, I really love it. You know, I, 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 I said before, you know, you, just, you shouldn't have your identity tied up in that, but I have been an athlete for a really long time. And so um, I think I can empathize with people both, you know, in the military and or as an athlete. And uh, if not, I would I would like to continue to do either Intel stuff or um, I was actually working as a the XO in at European Command in Germany. So if I could do like a mission like that for a year, um, I would like to. The one thing about being an athlete in the army is that it's um, it's difficult to kind of be really proficient at your military job because this is all I'm doing right now is I'm training and that's my job right now is to be an athlete. We still have to meet, you know, obviously uh, our, our career kind of milestones. I still had to, you know, I had to go to Bullock. I still am going to have to go to captain's career course. So you, you do have to uphold that end of your career, but um, to really get like the on the job training, it's, it, it is hard. It's hard to do both. And I feel like that is kind of the one challenge is that, um, you, you kind of, I guess, are a little bit behind. Like for me, and I, I'm going to probably, let's say in 2022, if I'm not an athlete anymore, I will have to kind of play catch up in terms of my, my on-the-job training and job experience. And so I guess I would like to have that opportunity, even if it's a little late. <laughs> I think there are a lot of parallels, like you were mentioning earlier, between you mentioned Special Forces, but you just mentioned the military in general and the struggle of transition and the identity. The special operations community is certainly one of those areas in which um, there's a lot of parallels with uh, professional athletes and, and people like yourself who are, you know, um, athletes who are competing in the Olympics and everything because you're constantly training. The op tempo is high. You know, you have to go through several different competitions. They go through missions. You know, there's a lot of parallels there. And the same thing is when they come back, you know, we've talked about it a lot that they struggle in um, more of a garrison lifestyle or when they mm -hmm. get out, the first thing they want to do is check out. You know, some of them want to go off to Utah or off to some place that's remote and they don't realize the difficulty of that from the men mental aspect of it. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I think there are a lot of parallels and I think that you would have a lot to contribute in that. Um, and there are organizations that are out there that are finding that commonality and uh, mir uh, putting mirroring marrying um, professional athletes together with, or former professional athletes at least, together with military service members because they see that there's such a, uh, a comparison there of, you know, the high, the euphoric, and then coming back down on the reality and having to deal with that from a mental, sta a mental standpoint. So um, hopefully you'll get that opportunity. I think there are options like that that are available to you, by the way. 
If, if that's the uh, the future, I guess right now with everything that's going on with the coronavirus and stuff like that, I'm assuming that you're still training as we've been talking about at this time frame. And um, so what has that been like for you with all this going on? Because I'm assuming that, you know, we're going to start referring, by the way, to this period. I heard you say this earlier. We used to refer to the post 9-11, everything after 9-11. Is this going to now be the post coronavirus, you know, period? Yeah. So, post COVID. Yes. Uh-huh. Hopefully it's sooner than later. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) um, it's been interesting. I mean, I've had to make some adjustments. Um, So for I was I'm currently on leave, actually, at at my parents' house. And um, I was at the Olympic Training Center in Lake Placid. And um, they had to close everything, even though it's like its own little bubble, because it's still considered a gym and like the cafeteria is considered a restaurant. They had to close everything, no sports wow. medicine, nothing. So it, it was it was really uh, strange. <laughs> nothing was really going on there. And then uh, luckily I have had uh, some access to equipment. I mean, it's 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 really been definitely an adjustment and, and making it work. And then um, when I've been on leave, I actually had a ton of use, lose, leave days. So I was like, I'm going to use all of it and go home because we, they still, they are just starting to let people in the training center. And so, um, and I have a bunch of, I have a, like full weight set and everything at my parents, which is nice. My, my dad was like, you know, a couple of years ago was like, why do we have this stuff? Why are we holding your stuff in the house? And then, then he's like, Oh, it's so good that you have this stuff. Like, yeah. yeah, it is. I know. Yeah, yeah definitely. Uh, well, it gives him a good excuse to have you there too. Right. Because they have all the equipment you can't get access. Otherwise, Hey, come stay with exactly. us for a short time frame. Yeah. It is. I wanted to add that the army is the number one employer of sports psychologists in the world which is like a fun fact. Um, and I think that that requirement is only increasing. The more we value mental health and, and the more we view that as it's not just physical training, it's mentally training. Um, I think that's awesome. I think you bring such unique require, like unique skill sets to that. Um, you touched a little bit about, you know, I know I'll have to catch up on my technical side of my job, but I think you're going to bring so many other skills that you picked up along the way. I think it's going to be, you're going to be great. So we're excited to uh, we're excited to see you slide somewhere at some point and yeah <laughs> yeah who knows maybe we're coming to Beijing yeah <laughs> do a podcast remote there you go that'd be amazing but not 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 while you're going down or anything like, yeah, well. <laughs> we're a bit of a break now so we're not interested <laughs> maybe I'll, by that time you know like you'll have like the view inside the iron man helmet we'll just do it like that and i'll try talking to you <laughs> oh no that would be wicked cool yeah yeah that, that would be wicked cool well we miss you nothing but the best megan <clears throat> thank, thank you so you. much again for coming on the show and sharing your story with us and stuff i think it's an amazing one and not just you know of your past and everything and the resiliency and coming through it but what you're planning on doing for the future um i i think it uh it's very commendable and i wish you nothing but the best thank you thanks for having me take care Megan. 